for a moment, we would go back to Romans chapter 7 and see if there were any questions that had cropped up from that because I thought it's actually quite a, quite a passage and I wasn't thinking to spend all the time looking at that but I thought I would give an opportunity if people had um, questions. Remember in Romans 7 we were looking at I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. That's the bit we looked at this morning. I'm quite happy just to go straight on to something else, but I wondered if there were any questions. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's, lot, there's quite a few dyings and comings alive, and they're not all the same, are they? So it's, we're dead to sin through Christ's death. We are dead in sin without. And he seems to be talking of something, uh, maybe something different again, that he says, without the law I was alive, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So perhaps he's talking about yet another form of death. I don't know. I don't want to get into deep water. Um. I think also it's that, that comfort to us, isn't it, in the sense that, you know, even the great Apostle Paul saying, you know, what I want to do, I do not do. What I want to do, I'm doing. You know, yeah. There was that battle. That's right. Yes. There's an interpretation of this passage which is about I wouldn't have known sin unless the Lord had told me what sin was. That's okay. <laughs> but I think the really difficult bit is getting our heads around this idea of what it is about when God makes a command that makes us more than 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it, when you put the two things together, there is an, a multiplication. And he's keen to say that the law isn't to blame for this. So the law is not the guilty party. It's sin. But nevertheless, when you put the two together, you do get this multiplication. Yeah. therefore one is very reticent to try and pin this on people and to say you need to have a law work before you come to the gospel for example where the Puritans might have gone down that road a bit. I, I wonder whether we could include in this sinfulness the sinfulness of pride because that is one of the effects of the law it makes people proud and hard. I'm not quite sure how I can completely square this with the passage, but if you think in terms of people like Paul, the Israelites like Paul, the sin that was prevalent in the nation was the sin of pride and self-righteousness which is the very thing that was resulted in Christ being crucified. And that was in Paul, wasn't it? Because he persecuted Christ. And I wonder, I'm not quite sure how easy it is to square with the wording here, but the, the idea of, if he hadn't been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he wouldn't have been the chief of sinners, would he? If he, he, if he wasn't so sure of himself and so zealous against Christians, then he wouldn't have committed the sins that he, he committed. So I suppose that's saying that sin becomes sinful in its outward manifestation, although it's not saying that Paul was conscious of it at the time, because it had to have it pointed out, didn't he? Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the, the goads? He, he wasn't conscious of it at the time. I, I think it's a, di it's a difficult passage, and the, and the passage afterwards is, is difficult as well. Mm. In other words, we can do we can do commendable things without being without realizing at the time that they're commendable, uh, and we can do terribly sinful things without realizing at the time that they're terribly sinful. Yeah. Although, uh, just coming back to the passage, he does say no, doesn't he? I would not have known 
sin apart from through the law. So that does seem to imply that he did know something. Uh, the idea of the idea of um, sin being shown to be sin. I'm just trying to see where it says that. Can't see it. Oh, it's in verse 13. Yeah, that sin might be, I think it's shown rather than recognised. Okay, well, let's, let's move on, because I don't know the answer to all those questions. Uh, but the fact that we don't know the answer to all the questions does not mean that it isn't useful to look at it and worth, worth the effort of thinking and discussing and etc. So let's pray again, shall we? Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand more deeply and in our own hearts and minds to not be strangers to the things of which your scripture speaks where we're supposed to know, in, know them in our experience and help us as we think together about this business of grasping the goodness of scripture to enable one another to live according to your word. Amen. Amen. Well, this is what I thought we could look at this evening. Uh, grasping the goodness of Scripture, we looked last time at the idea that what the Bible says is what God says. So that's the, in a, very, in a nutshell, the evangelical understanding of Scripture. Uh, last time we looked at the objections that this idea was unchristian, that it was unlikely that it was boring, that it was difficult, and that it was irrelevant. And we went through all the reasons why people would think that and why the Bible wouldn't agree with any of them. So I thought we would try to move on a little bit this evening. I think with the evangelical doctrine of Scripture, when it, where the rubber hits the road, there are two sticking points. Uh, number one is what happens in church. So this is the preaching and teaching of God's Word and the sticking point being when people have, uh, when people say, I listen to the preaching of God's Word and I find it's tiresome and boring. And that I think is, an, is, is a reason why people would not be enthusiastic about the evangelical doctrine of Scripture. Uh, that particular issue I'd like to put on one side for another time. Uh, it is in the church diary to look at the matter of preaching, so I'm not, that's not a way of ducking out of it. Uh, the second sticking point is that personal Bible reading is difficult and unrewarding and I thought we'd have a look at that because people say that it's 
difficult and people, although they don't necessarily say it's unrewarding, they behave as if it's unrewarding because they don't have a habit of personal Bible reading. So presumably if it was rewarding, they would, and presumably they think it's unrewarding, and therefore they don't. Uh, and that's what I thought we would have a look at this evening. So uh, the zeroth point is that the Bible itself does not command a quiet time of personal Bible reading and it would be a strange thing if it did because people haven't had access to their own personal Bibles uh, until such time as they were printed which a quick look on Google says is in the 1530s so for one and a half centuries of, the, of Christianity, it has not been possible to have your own Bible, so therefore, presumably, the, the, uh, it would be a rather strange thing if, the, if we were commanded to do our own personal Bible reading if we didn't have our own personal Bible. But the Bible does say something not too far away from that, so let's look at Psalm 1, which is an example. There are many other pieces of the Bible that say something not too different. Psalm 1 verses 1 to 3. Psalm 1 verses 1 to 3. And um, Roger, could you read this that to us please? Uh, have I caught you on the hop? Um, Thank you very much. That was Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, and it contrasts the way of the wicked, the way of sinners, the way of mockers, and says, don't go that way, go the other way. And what is the other way? Well, the other way is the way of the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, we presume he or she meditates, day and night. So I suppose that the psalm is describing something that is possible without having your own copy of the Bible, but it's assuming that there is some way of thinking about what's written in the Bible every day and every night, and it might have been memorization, because if you don't have your own printed copy, you might find that the idea of remembering extended pieces of the Bible is a much more necessary thing. So it might have been my memorization, or it might have been that somebody had a portion of the Bible and you got together with them and read it. So it might have been in a group reading, or it might have been in the synagogue, 
or it might have been in the context of the family, I don't know. But there must have been some way that they could do this, otherwise it wouldn't have said it. So in other words, although the Bible doesn't command, thou shalt have a quiet time when thou wakest up, and thou shalt spend at least twelve and a half minutes reading the Bible, and thou shalt get extra points for every minute above twelve and a half that thou spendest. It doesn't say anything like that. No, it does say something like that. It doesn't say that, but it does say it's a blessed thing to meditate on the law of the Lord every day and every night. And it goes on to say that such and such a person is like a tree planted by streams of water uh, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever this person does prospers. So it, it says there's a blessing, a real spiritual blessing in, in doing that, in meditating, thinking about what God has said. Okay, that's the zeroth point because that's the sort of foundation. Now, uh, I think I'd probably stop doing numbering at this point, but anyway. Uh, is it easy or difficult? Now, last time one of the objections was, it, or the possible objections was, the Bible is difficult. And I'm sure we could all think of bits of the Bible that are difficult. We were just discussing one a few moments ago. And Adam and Rachel were saying that they'd been reading through the book of Leviticus, which was, uh, was it Leviticus? Yeah. Right. Really, really hot suppers you get into numbers. But Leviticus, it's, it's not an easy book for a Christian to read, is it? It's said that uh, Jewish children are taught Leviticus as being foundational. That it was the first book that they were taught in the synagogue or in the home because it was so foundational. But... Christians, we, we find it's very difficult, very difficult indeed. Um, well, okay, is, is, so should that put us off the idea of reading the Bible ourselves? We looked at the point last time that the Bible is understandable, and there's a word for this which is perspicuity, which means clear. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks so that we, not just the clever ones amongst us, but all of us, can understand it. That's the perspicuity of Scripture. God speaks so that we can understand. We have to add a few things to that. It doesn't mean that we necessarily understand every single thing. So I've put round that. God speaks so that we can understand the main point the main point of the gospel, so the, the foundational things, how to be saved, how to live the Christian life, how to be a witness for Jesus Christ, how to do what God wants us to do. So the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us how to solve simultaneous differential equations or play chess, because God doesn't necessarily want us to do that, but the things that God does want us to do are there, uh, and we can understand the main points. I've also added to that that we can understand if we use normal means. So what would you do if you were trying to um, understand any book? Well, you would read it 
um, from starting at the beginning, working through to the end, for example, you wouldn't read it backwards. You wouldn't expect to understand it if you read it backwards. You'd read it in the normal way. Uh, if there were words you didn't understand, you'd look them up in a dictionary. Things like that. God has spoken to us in human language, using the human conventions of language, and we are to use the normal human means in order to understand it. Uh, now, one of the interesting things is that the Quran, so I understand, I'm open to correction on this, but the Quran loses its power if you take it out of Arabic into another language. But the day of Pentecost proves that it is possible to speak about the saving works of God in all different languages. So that message is, in essence, translatable without losing its power uh, into ordinary language such as English. So although each fine detail, you might say, well, I need to look this up, in a reference book or something like that. But for the main point, we have a Bible in our own language. We ought to be able to come to a reasonable understanding of what it says using ordinary means. So I, I, it does not without using means, it is using ordinary means. Uh, then I put another point there that we need to be in prayer. We need to pray when we come to the Bible because it's not just an ordinary book. It is written in ordinary English language, but it isn't just an ordinary book. It's God's Word. And we are seeking to have something like a, a conversation with God when we open his, his book. So I put prayer. It doesn't have to be uh, a long a flashy prayer, but just saying, Lord, I, please can you help me to understand the Bible this morning or this evening or whenever it is I'm reading it, this lunchtime. Uh, a prayer, it, it, it's, it's at least respectful, isn't it? And um, if you were talking to somebody, you'd, you'd, you'd uh, well, if you were expecting to understand what somebody was saying, you would make it a two-way thing. So prayer. And I've also put there, by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that there is this thing that people can understand the words and yet not appreciate the spiritual impact of them. Uh, and he says, and I haven't got the reference, that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So a clever linguist or a clever reader of English language could read the Bible and say, well, yeah, I understand that. And if you said to them, but do you feel your need to turn to Christ? They might say, well, not necessarily. Uh, do you believe what you've written? Not necessarily. So that there is that importance of the, the work of the Spirit. So that's why I've put, is it easy or difficult? Well, God speaks so that we can understand, uh, so that we can understand the main points using normal means as we pray, and as the Holy Spirit helps us. And I had one reference for this, which was Psalm 19, verse 7.
Psalm 19, verse 7. Enid, please, could you read us Psalm 19, verse 7? Thank you. So it was just that little point at the end. Making wise the simple. You don't have to have a PhD uh, in order to understand the statutes of the Lord. Uh, uh, He makes wise the simple. So it's much more to do with the, the soul that is genuinely wanting to hear what God's saying than being terribly clever and knowing the original languages and all that sort of stuff. So that point there. Is that fair enough? Yeah. At this point I completely forgot that I'd started numbering. Um, So I've got two lists here. One list of what sort of goodness we might expect the Bible to have for us and a second list of how we might, in practice, uh, seek to, to, uh, to make that our own, uh, our own practice and our own experience. So what sort of goodness does the Bible give? I did put a little caricature, which I think I've left behind. Yeah, I have. So realistic expectations, and I keep, uh, what I keep coming back to is it's not a magic book. It's not magic. It won't, we shouldn't expect God to speak to us in some sort of zapping way, uh, it's difficult to try and put it in the make sure you're not saying contradicting the right thing. Uh, okay, well, let's do, let's do it this way. What can we expect? So I put a list of things there, and you can tell me whether you agree with them, and if you can think of anywhere where the Bible says this. So I've put that the Bible gives comfort. So I'm thinking of security. another word for comfort in this sense think about that I put encouragement encouragement is a, is a word which isn't just about feeling positive it is, does include courage so presumably if you encourage people you put them in a position where they are having courage to go and do whatever they're supposed to do. So, encouragement. I put conviction and challenge. So, that would be the idea that the Bible doesn't just pat us on the head all the time, but it says to us, actually, you're deeply wrong in what you are thinking, and you're deeply wrong in what you are doing or failing to do, and the Bible I'm saying, and you can tell me whether you agree with me in a minute, has the power to, in in quite a sharp way and an unmistakable way, to say to us, you're wrong on this point. So to convict us and to challenge us. 
And I put assurance, which perhaps isn't that different from comfort, but I'm thinking of being made sure so that we're not wibbly-wobbly in what we believe, so we believe it strongly for a few minutes and then we're not sure what we do, to make us sure. And then I've put training in righteousness so that we have the skills in living to live rightly in all the different situations that we face. And then I put reasons for praise. So that's my, so that's my list of things that we might expect the Bible to give to us. So A, do you agree with the list? And B, is there anything else that you think ought to be on the list true, isn't it? Yes. Let's write that down. Is there any sort of information that you had in mind particularly? Thank you. Consolation, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I don't know if it's comforting when you go to the flats or you read particular psalms because they come out of human experience and maybe David's psalms and discomforts and problems that you face and you realise that yeah, you're not the only one that's worse than this. Yeah, yeah. had in mind Romans 15 verse 4 in a part of that which includes a number of those things Romans 15 verse 4 Martin, could you give us Romans 15, verse 4, please? For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Thank you. 
I was sort of linking endurance and encouragement with scripture, rightly or wrongly. Uh, the idea, the, the, the one that I had in my mind is through the patience and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. But anyway, he, sa- he says here that scripture does give encouragement. So that was one of the, one of the, the texts I had in mind for putting encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> Were you thinking of a song? Yes. Yes. All oh, right. I wasn't thinking of that one. Very good. Very good. Yes, yes. And interesting that one of the ways of meditating on Scripture is by singing. Seems to me that that's one of the advantages of song that it does stick in your mind, and you can bring it back again quite quite easily. Well. So at least some of the, the phrases stick in one's mind. I think that in itself is, is part of this meditating on the law of the Lord and bringing to one's mind the things that, are, that God has said. Yep. Knowledge. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. I, I suppose I end up with a, a very long list of things that Scripture does, but it, it, it certainly provides us so that we know things. So we know what the Lord did, we know what he said, we know what God did in the, in, in the Old Testament, and all of those things are feeding to our faith, aren't they? Is that what you were... Yeah. Yes. 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 That's right. Yeah. 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 Yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How we become part of that story. Now, Catherine was saying, and again, I'm open to correction, that the Quran doesn't do that. It's not a story. It's just a set of sayings that are put down one after another in not not a sequential order. But the Bible is a, a story, isn't it? It follows through. And part of getting to understand any part of the Bible is how it fits into that story. So it's very difficult unless you've got an idea of where it's all going to. Yeah. Is there a part in the Bible where it specifically says us train, it trains us in righteousness? 2 Timothy 3.16 2 Timothy 3.16 
Chris, could you read that to us, please? Yeah, scripture is Thank you. Uh, that's a, a, quite a comprehensive statement, isn't it? All Scripture is God-breathed, and then it says what sort of good things it's useful for. So teaching, which we've touched on, uh, rebuking, which we've mentioned, correcting, which we've mentioned, training in righteousness, which was the phrase I used on the screen, and the idea that the man of God, or the, I think we could extend that to the reader, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's something about the sufficiency of Scripture. Every good work, whatever good work it is, the Bible is able to equip us for it thoroughly. In other words, we don't, there is not such a thing as a good work for which we have to go outside the Bible to get our advice, because the Bible is incapable of instructing us on that point. Scripture is there so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that was a, a list of, thing, of the sort of goodnesses that we might rightly expect the Bible to give us it won't, in that list, I don't think we should have a bit that says that the Bible will sort of magically tell us which, um, uh, what the answers are going to be in our exam, or what job to apply for, or what university to apply for, or things like that. In the Bible enables us to make those sorts of decisions. I think that's part of the training in righteousness. But we shouldn't expect the Bible in some magical way to tell us, ah, you should have gone to Surrey, or whatever it is. Uh, a bit late now, isn't it? But do you see what I mean? Anyway, so second list. God's Word is supernatural, but not magic. So we shouldn't, uh, this is how we come to the Bible. So this is my list, see what you think. So not by forgetting the things we already know. So I don't think the Bible is designed so that when we read our, if we, read a, if we were in the habit of reading a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, when we've woken up, we shouldn't expect that paragraph to say everything as if we'd never heard anything else before. Uh, it's not by forgetting the things we already know. Part of meditation on Scripture, part of our spiritual duty, is to remember. And it's helpful if the passage that we're reading reminds us of things, and if it doesn't, we might have to remind ourselves some other way. So, for example, in Leviticus, it's not going to remind us of the facts of the gospel unless we bring other things in. So we might have to say, uh, we will supplement this by reading from the Gospel of Mark or something else. Do you see what I mean? So not by forgetting the things we already know, not by reading at random. So there, there was an idea that if you, know, if you just sort of threw the Bible up in the air, see what page it is when it opens, 
and read the first thing that comes to your mind, that that is a particularly spiritual way of God speaking to you. But I don't think it is. I don't think the Bible is designed to work like that. Not by reading at random, but by prayer, with repentance and responsiveness, using the mind, with help from guides, with others, using technology, with obedience, with habit and perseverance. And those are my, that was my second list. So let's just for a few minutes see what, what we think about that. Is that sensible or are there other things that you think ought to be on that list? It's a great prayer. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Even though it's difficult, there's, 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 yeah. 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 This. It's, it, not always, but often the case that you say, well, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with most of this, but this bit here, I know what that bit means, and I can make that into a prayer, or as you say, take it with you through the day. I must say I'm not very good at doing that, but uh, there's usually something that you can fix on. Yeah. So I didn't quite catch the last bit you said, but you said respect. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I suppose it's an interesting question as to what respect means. Um, yeah. Yeah. As opposed to triviality as opposed to flippancy. So, uh, so saying, I'm reading this and I really do take it seriously. So I remember Steve Slater, who was, and to a certain extent, is a missionary in Russia, saying that he was rebuked as an evangelical by the attitude of the orthodox um, people because they wouldn't read the Bible sitting up in bed because it was disrespectful, uh, whereas Steve said that he would. Do you think that, is it respectful to read the Bible in bed? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is, yes. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of your bodily posture so much as your mental attitude, isn't it? That, that you're taking it seriously. Yeah. 
Let's uh, Somebody who's been there before knows their way around. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And I think also you're right to point out there is a, there is a, it's not, not so much a pitfall, but a, a, something to be wary of that you find a good guide and you end up reading the guide and taking more notice of the guide than, than the Bible. And I suppose what this is saying is we've just got to keep. Do things to keep Bible reading fresh. So if you've been using such and such a set of notes, which are very helpful, uh, I, I mean, my experience is I find them helpful, and then after a while I think, oh, this, uh, this has stopped being fresh, and try some different ones, or try a different, a, a different thing, or a different book, or something like that. In, in some ways, I think the important thing is to do it really, is to, to be opening the Bible and reading it. It is a recipe for wandering away from the Lord, isn't it? with you on that. Didn't quite understand that. So Yeah, so it's a sort of, in the same area as I put a responsiveness. Yes, I, I, I think there is an issue if we know there's something wrong in our lives and we're not prepared to change it, that Bible reading does become a bit of a hollow exercise and one wouldn't really expect it to be particularly real and meaningful if there's something in one's life that one is that one knows one is just not um, being obedient about. Yeah. I think 
Yes, that's right. There's, th there's things that are, uh, in a way, legitimate, which can become too important, um, distracting, um, and they can be things that are good in themselves. I suppose we could say they become idols if they, if they become uh, loom too large, and the, and the Bible is there to point that out. Yep. I mentioned this reading with others. So uh, there is an importance about meditating on the law of the Lord oneself. But reading with others, reading perhaps if you're a married person with your husband or wife, or reading with a group, Bible study group, uh, reading the Bible in the family, if you look back into previous centuries when there were households and servants that lived in, the Christian householders would actually set a great store by getting the servants together in the morning, reading the Bible, praying, and then they go about their business, and then having um, prayers for the household again in the evening. So, uh, well, I mean, most of, us, most of us don't have servants, do we? But I think that the idea of uh, group Bible reading, if, if it's in the family, I, I, I would commend that very much. So Pastor Les, when we had next door uh, 70 Viaduct Road, and uh, Les had all his students, however many, eight or 12 students, he'd come back from work, cook up value burgers, mashed potato, and frozen beans, and feed these 12 hungry students, and there would always be a Bible reading and a prayer. Uh, and that was an important, I think that was an important part of that community. And what about with habit and perseverance? Would you agree with that, Chris? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Say it again. Yes. Um, so, what, what, what's the definition of a hollow habit then? Yeah, 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 if it was like that, yes, yes. I think. agree with that, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I think doing something just so you can tick it off a list, 
is rather dismissive and disrespectful to, to that activity. But persevering with something that we know we should be doing, even if we're finding it unrewarding temporarily, I think is, is a, a right thing to do. Jesus had habits. It says he went into the synagogue as his habit was, and, um, or, or as his custom was. So I think habit as such is our friend in this. It, it's like, well, like with many things in the Christian life, or well, a certain number of things, if you know you're just going to do that anyway, rather than thinking, shall I, shan't I, do I feel the Lord leading me to do this, uh, whatever. If we say, well, I always read the Bible at lunchtime. When I've, well, having my sandwiches, I know I'm going to be not disturbed, but I always read the Bible. And it gives me an opportunity to pray. A habit is, is, a, is a good thing. If you're a commuter, I know commuters have that section of time and they might say, well, I always read a good book or I always read my Bible on the train and I just do that and, and it, those sorts of things pay off I think as the years go by okay that's, uh, that's what I was going to look at thank you very much for your contribution and I hope that was helpful let's close by singing 768